Hey everyone, Zach Dixon here, and welcome to our 43rd episode of Animalators, curious conversations from the world of animation. Today on the show, we have Joey Coronin, founder of School of Motion. Joey has had a ton of experience in the motion design industry, spending time as a freelancer, as a studio owner and creative director of Toil in Boston, and a professor at Ringling teaching motion design. Now Joey spends his days running School of Motion, an innovative online training platform focused on making you a better motion designer. Today we'll talk about Joey's past, running a successful studio, why he decided to leave it all behind. Uh, We'll talk about School of Motion and the future of art education. And we'll talk about Joey's brand new book, The Freelance Manifesto, which is available today on Amazon. And I highly recommend it. I've got one right here. Uh, This is a long one, but stick around. Joey is full of wisdom and great insights on the industry with some incredibly practical tips on life and business as a freelancer. I'm excited to get into all of this and more on this week's episode of Animalators. Joey, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Zach. I uh, I am honored to be on Animalators. Oh, please, uh, it's it's awesome. I've been been hoping to get you on the show. Uh, I think back since um, we met at Blend, Blend One, the the first Blend when you you hosted, mm-hmm. which you did an, a fantastic job of, by the way. Um, uh, thank you, thank you. That was one of the that initial Blend when I was the host. That was one of like the top three memories really? like, of my entire life. Wow. Absolutely. Man, yeah, I, I remember I, I had to cu- I would I would get off stage and we'd take a break and people would come up to me and they knew who I was because like <laughs> literally in that one little corner of the world, yeah. I was like a celebrity right. for two days. And I'd call my wife and I'd be like, you got to bring me back down to earth because this is like too, <laughs> this is too much. Like my head, yeah. my head's going to explode. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. It's like the perfect like niche audience is like all right there. It's great. Exactly. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. All right, so so super exciting news for you. You are in, I guess, the the pre-launch phase of a brand new book called The Freelance Manifesto, um, which is is very exciting. So congratulations on that. Tell, tell us all a little bit about uh, your book. Sure. So by the time you listen to this, uh, the book will be available in Kindle and paperback on Amazon. Um, and uh, I've been a big fan of buying up little short URLs. I just bought MoGraph.beer because oh. it was available. And it, it, you can go there. It just goes to School of Motion. Um, <laughs> nice. But uh, freelance.how, <laughs> H-O-W, uh, that'll take you to like the info page for the book. But uh, the book is something I've been working on sort of for like three years. I actually made an attempt to write the book before School of Motion was kind of what it is now and, you know, before we were running classes and stuff and it was just like my tutorial blog site. And I started working on the book because um, I, I kept getting emails and questions about the business side of motion design. And at the time, uh, I was running a studio Uh, I had been a freelancer for years before that, and it was really interesting because I started to see all of these opportunities as a business owner, as someone running a studio, the way that we would get new business as a studio. I thought, huh, this would probably work for freelancers too. And then on top of that, a lot of the things I was learning running a website about you know, how to use email marketing and, and how to, you know, measure traffic and and some of the technology that's available now to get email addresses. And I sort of put this whole thing together. I will, I'm sure we'll get into this. But when I went freelance for the second time, 
I had so many more tools than I did the first time. And freelancing was easy at that point. It was like I could get as much work as I wanted using these new tools. So I tried putting it together in a book. It was just way too hard. <laughs> Writing a book is a lot harder than it looks. And I ended up finding this company that you can hire and they will basically work with you to write the book. Like they, they interview you. There's this whole process. It's amazing. And they transcribe your words, turn that into a book for you. So that's what the book is. It is uh, it's two parts. It's the first part is why you should consider freelancing as a motion designer. And the second part is literally a recipe for getting clients and making them really happy. And it's very, very ground level. I, I hope that everyone that reads the book comes away with at least like 10 or 12 new tricks um, on how to find leads and contact them and things that you would never have thought of before. Yeah. No, and I think that's great. And I think it's really helpful because, I mean, a lot of us get into this because we we love art, we love motion, animation, we love the craft, but I feel like that business part is is really tough. I mean, not not a lot of us are coming out of business school, and so like I think that's a big gap in I don't know, in in what we know. We just kind of have to learn out learn how we go. So that's why I'm very excited to read it. Thanks for sending me a copy. Yeah, because it's it's something that you can kind of learn, you know, trial by fire, but I don't know, gathering that information from someone like yourself who has, you know, been there is, is awesome. So actually, I think it might be helpful to get that context before we do jump into too much of this book, because I know you've done some freelancing, you have you have School of Motion as well, which is a big part of your your life. And then you've done done studio work all, all the game. So how did you get your start in, in the motion design industry? Well, I went to Boston University for college and I was in the film and television program there and I, I thought I wanted to be a director and do films and all that stuff. And after interning for a few production studios and going on shoots a lot, I realized that what I really liked was what happens after that when you get into a computer and you can edit and manipulate and, and post-production basically. So my first job was as an assistant editor uh, at, a, at a studio in Boston. I ended up uh, they ended up firing the editor like a, a year after I got there. And the plan was, oh, we'll just make Joey the editor until we can find a real editor. Um, but I ended up being the editor there, like the head editor and working with ad agencies and stuff like that um, on national spots when I was like 23. Um, it was a great it was a great learning experience. And while I was there, that's when I really started to dig into After Effects and I got into um you know, creative cow and all that stuff, trying, trying to get better at it. And I've kind of just fell in love with that stuff because as an editor, you're limited by the footage you're given. And that's how I see it. I've talked to other editors that would completely disagree with me and say that it's, it's not necessarily a limit. It doesn't limit you. Uh, but that's how I looked at it with, with after effects and design, you can just do whatever you want. Right. So I quit and I went freelance and I freelanced in Boston for about six or seven years. And I worked with all the places that were in Boston, basically. And there's there's far more now. There's some amazing studios in Boston now, like uh, Black Math that didn't oh, exist yeah. when I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're incredible. Uh, Viewpoint Creative is still there, and they do amazing stuff, and I did a lot of work with them. And Boston's a big ad agency town, so I worked with all of them. And then I ended up falling into the trap. And I've written about this. Uh, there's an article on Motionographer called Too Old for MoGraph. Yeah. Oh, this is a great article. Everyone should go pause the podcast and read that real quick and come back. But yeah, yeah. it's a it's a heavy read though. Like it you is. want like a, gla- a glass of scotch or something <laughs> when you read it. Um, yeah. But, but basically I fell into the trap I think a lot of people do, which is when you're young and full of energy and ambition and you're not as tied down with things like a mortgage and kids and stuff like that, 
you set these goals for yourself. I want to open my own studio. And so I had that goal and I saw I got an opportunity to do it. I there were two business partners that I met. I was actually talking to a lot of people all over town who had gotten to know me and I was kind of floating the idea, "Hey, we should open a studio." And finally, these these two guys that I had worked with uh, said, "Hey, let's do it." And they had an existing editing like a like an editorial shop that was really successful, doing great work, and they were getting asked more and more to do motion design stuff and neither of them knew how. So they were hiring freelancers and they said, why don't we spin off like a kind of a side brand and that can be your thing, Joey, and you'll run it and it'll be a motion design studio. And I thought, this is perfect, you know, like I've got, because now we have existing clients, they already had an office like right in downtown Boston and it was great. And I kind of went in there and for a year under the radar, we did a bunch of spec work. You know, on paper, it was like the perfect situation. Like I was getting a salary and I was doing client work, but we were kind of soft launching. And then after that first year, we went out and we did the dog and pony show at all the ad agencies. I'm sure, I'm sure Zach, you've, you've had to do that before. You <laughs> yeah. know, you go show your reel yeah, around yeah. and take people out to lunch. And we did all that. And slowly but surely, we started to get work. Um, and I ran Toil. The, so the company was called Toil. If you go to Toil Boston, T-O-I-L Boston.com, the website's still there. There is still some version of Toil in existence, but it's very different than when I was there. And we were doing work I was proud of. I was actually really excited about what we were doing. It was like high level. We were hiring great designers and getting great boards. And my specialty is really animating. So I, I was kind of the lead animator on a lot of these things. We hired some amazing, amazing talent. Uh, Kyle Predke, who I don't know if you got to meet him at Blend, but he's an incredible animator out of Bend, Oregon. Connor Collier. I mean, we, we had a great team. We were doing great work. And I reached this point where I was like, on paper... I've checked off every single box. I was getting paid really well. I had a great team, a great office. We were doing national work. And yet I was miserable, like depressed. I'm generally, people always tell me I'm generally like a happy-go-lucky guy. And I was not for a little while. I was like, like literally, like I... For six months, I was on uh, like an anti, you know, like depression meds basically, which I've never, ever, ever had to deal with. And, and it gave me like a, you know, uh, appreciation for, for people who have to deal with that because I'd never been through anything like that. And it caused me to really soul search and look at what I was doing. And I realized I was getting up every day. I was commuting in by train to Boston and I was doing work that literally added nothing positive to the world sold sandwiches and insurance and cars and stuff. Um, and aside from my salary and my team, which was really the best part of it, I didn't like getting up and going to work every day. Uh, and so that's when I decided to make this pivot that kind of led me into School of Motion. Wow. So how long ago was that? How long has School of Motion been been a thing? Uh, so I think I registered the URL in 2013. Um, so it's really only about four years old maybe, you know, four and a half years. And the, uh, the the first iteration of it was just me basically copying Nick Campbell. Like, okay, I'm just gonna do tutorials, but he's doing Cinema 4D, I'll do After Effects. And, you know, he I loved how he would always say, uh, you know, I am the gorilla and he had this great branding. And so it's like, okay, I need a name, School of Motion. I think I had seen that movie, School of Rock. And I thought I love the name because it was just like so simple. And the URL was available, which is like 99% of the reason we're School of Motion. And um, yeah, and so I, I just started making these tutorials four years ago. And it, it took a while. It really took about a year and a half, two years to discover how this was going to actually be my full-time job. It's actually my full-time job now. Um, I don't do client work anymore. 
But yeah, it started about four years ago and while I was at Toil. It was that last year I was there that I started it. So let's jump back to that like kind of transition out of Toil. I mean, I... It, it might not happen in that exact situation, but I think a lot of people have this kind of idea of what they want their life to look like, and then they get to that place, and it, it might be a little bit different than than what you thought. I don't know. I feel like that's and that's a big hurdle to get over. Could you talk a little bit more about that kind of transition and 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 how you knew that, you know, it was, it was time to move on? Because I think that's a tough yeah, decision. Hundred percent. So here's how it happened for me. So in that motionographer article, I think I, I created this term wrong mountain syndrome. Uh, and it's basically the idea that you set a goal and that goal may take five, 10 years to achieve, but that's fine. And you put your head down and you start walking and it's like you're walking up a mountain. And every once in a while, you need to stop and look around and make sure that like this is still the direction you want to go in. And I never did that. I was go, go, go like for years and years and years. And so when I hit that bout of depression, it caused me to start looking for answers. And I think a lot of people fall into this where they hit kind of a rough point in their life and they start like reading self-help books and Tony Robbins and everything. And I was kind of listening to podcasts and reading books. And um, I read this book uh, by Tim Ferriss called The 4-Hour Workweek. It's, it's like this terrible name, but... The book changed my life. And basically what the reason it did, there's a lot of good tactical information in it, but kind of the core premise of it is to just think like deliberately about every little piece of your life, how you want it to be, and then do the minimum amount of work to get there. And I had never done this exercise before. There's an exercise, I talk about it in the article, it's called the perfect day exercise, where you just project forward like 10, 20 years and you say, okay, it's Tuesday, just random Tuesday, not a holiday, not a special day. What's that day like for me? What time am I waking up? What's my bed like? Who's in bed with me? What am I having for breakfast? Am I going to the gym? What's the gym looking like? What am I doing for work? How much money is in my bank account? You know, all those things. And when you do that, so my wife and I sat down and did that. And we realized, okay, well, ideally, we're waking up and it's sunny outside. It's beautiful outside. And we lived in Massachusetts. And that's just generally not the case, you know, six to nine months of the year. I hate commuting. I When people tell me they have long commutes, I really feel for them because I did it for four years, like a three-hour-a-day commute. And especially when you have kids, like you don't realize it, but it's like it's time being stolen from you. You're basically lighting time on fire. So I don't want to commute ever again. I like, and, and what that means is if I'm in a car, five minutes. And I defined it. If, it, if I'm on a bike or something or I can walk there, then like 20, 30 minutes is fine because it's more fun, right? I want to be excited to go to work. And I thought about what does that mean? Well, doing After Effects and animating and all that stuff, that part's fun. I love that part. I'll always be doing that. The part I didn't like was dealing with the clients, you know, and not because clients are bad. And, you know, I don't, I'm not like, I'm not, I don't know if I can curse on this podcast, but <laughs> I'm not pooping. No, go for on it. Clients. Go for it. Yeah, I, I, I'm not shitting on clients here. Um, without clients, there is no, you know, motion design industry. But when you, you know, you get into this this field to create things and and it's fun and you're in After Effects and you're figuring things out and you're writing expressions and you make this thing and you get better and better and better. And then it's like, make the logo bigger, chop that cool thing out because we just want the logo up for longer. And it's just, you know, 
that kind of stuff after years and years with the commute and the and the seasonal affective disorder and all that stuff on top of it, you know, I just kind of, a, I woke up basically. That's how it felt. And my wife was kind of the same way because she had other things going on that she realized like, oh yeah, there's other things that you just kind of do because you've been doing them forever and you see other people doing them, like getting up and getting on a train and sitting on it for an hour and a half every day. You know, like, and then when you step back for two seconds and you question it, it's like, why the hell <laughs> was I doing that? And so, and then one other piece that was really important was I realized I was tired of trading my time for money because that is, um, you know, I don't know if this is the right term, but it's like a zero sum game. You only have so much time and you can only make your time a certain rate, right? Unless you're Chris Doe, and then it's then ten grand an <laughs> yeah, hour yeah, yeah. or whatever. Um, but but if you're Joey Cornman, you're you know one hour of Joey's time. You know, I mean, it might be worth a decent amount, but it's it's finite. And if I'm not working, I'm not earning, and my income is tied to how hard I work. And I realized something about myself that if that if I'm in that situation, if my value, like the amount I earn, is tied to how hard I work and how many hours I work, I work a lot of hours. So I needed a situation where I could invest time and then reap the benefits afterwards. And that meant creating a product. And so that was one of the initial like aha moments why I started School of Motion because I realized, you know, I'm never going to be able to turn my After Effects skill into a, a product that clients can buy over and over again working at a studio. Like, and that's why I love hearing about studios like Animade um, releasing products. Um, you know, I mean, and, and, and even you guys with this podcast, I mean, you're starting to branch out into things that, you know, one day can be passive income streams. And, and you know, even if you run a studio forever, it's, uh, it still gives you a cushion and it gives you slack in your life and in your day, which is so important. Totally. No, this is something we're thinking about a, a ton at the studio too, and I, I don't want to shift this, but that's you know we're working on a game. We're trying to figure out how we can kind of shift into more of a product space, and Animate is an excellent example of that as well too. I think it's super inspiring to see kind of kind of what, yeah. what they're doing at Blend. I heard a lot of people that I talked to said that they were looking to create products. They were looking, and, and I think it's kind of uh, the industry's kind of waking up because other industries have already sort of figured this out and. You know, for me, it was like it was a natural thing to say, OK, well, teaching is the, the contribution that I can give to this industry. That's something I'm really passionate about. And people tell me I'm good at it. So um, so that's what I'll do. You know, Nick figured out he's really good at coming up with these brilliant plugins uh, and he has Chris Schmidt to help him make them. And 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 cool. So that right. And, and I think a lot of people now you're seeing a lot of people experiment little doses of passive income. EJ um, Hassenfratz, you know, he's got products on his site. You know, I see guys like Kyle Martinez out there with Paul Slemmer. They're doing some cool things. And I don't know if they're charging for their things yet, but I mean, I think that's the next natural step. You build something a little more robust, you charge for it. And I think it's just smart. I think um, for a long time, I felt like our industry was afraid to talk about money in this way, where it's like, how do we make money? Um, because money in other industries and in like real estate or something, it gets put on this pedestal. For me, it was never about money. It was about what money gets you, which is time freedom. And to me, that's that's literally everything. Like everything in my life is a, is a, is built around how can I generate time freedom? Because now I have three kids. 
I live in Florida. I, you know, I run marathons. I, I have so many other things I'd rather be doing than sitting in front of a computer on a sunny day. So how can I invest those hours in front of the computer so that I don't have to be in front of the computer later? Hmm. Okay. So how did you make that transition then? So what I did uh, was we, we just kind of took it one piece at a time and we said, well, one big piece was the weather was was bothering us. And it sounds, I guess, kind of shallow to say uh, we didn't like the cold weather in Massachusetts. But um, anyone who's, you know, lived through like winters and grayness and, and has had seasonal affective disorder knows what I'm talking about. And so we decided to move somewhere warm. We started looking around and and we looked at um, San Diego. We looked at Phoenix um, and we looked at Florida and we actually took a trip to Fort Lauderdale as a family and fell in love with Florida. I mean, it just, it's, we're very laid back. We love being outdoors. We love the beach. We love swimming, just kind of fit. Uh, and I said, all right, well, if I'm going to leave this studio, I started, you know, with like 200K a year salary, basically. And we're going to sell our house and we're going to move away from all our friends and family. Um, and we're going to move to Florida. I'd love to have at least some sort of safety net there. So let me see if there's any studios in Florida. And I assumed what I would do is I'd move down here and I'd work full time somewhere and then eventually freelance from here. I got on Motionographer and I looked on their jobs board and there was a job listing for a faculty position in the motion design department at Ringling. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and I never occurred to me to actually go teach at a school. That was not my goal at all. Uh, and my wife said, you know what? Like, that's kind of providence. You should go ahead and just apply just to see what happens. And I filled out the application and I assumed it's a college, right? They're going to want someone with more credentials than I have. I have a bachelor's degree. Um, that's it. And uh, I sent them my application and I sent them a few tutorials I'd done at School of Motion, which I think made the difference. Uh, and a couple weeks later, I got a call. They were very, very interested. And that started the the process, talking to them, recruit, you know, they recruited me, brought me down. I met the head of the department. I gave kind of a fake class in front of a bunch of students and they ended up making me an offer. And, uh, you know, it, like it took it was literally like four months from seeing that ad to being in Florida, getting ready to teach. It was very fast change, very scary, enormous, enormous salary cut. Um, we went from a house in Massachusetts to like an apartment in Sarasota. We didn't know anybody. It was a pretty, um, to be honest, it was one of the best times of my life. Like, you know, I, I don't think, um, I think it's very easy to kind of get in a groove where you just feel safe. And I had definitely been doing that. Um, and, and most people do. And we get down there and it's like, everything's different. The weather's different. The people are different. My job, my day to day is different. I'm riding a bike to work right? We started to design our life. I want a bike to work. I don't want to commute. So we picked an apartment near work. You know, we were going to the beach twice a week. Uh, and I found that even though I was still working really hard, teaching is a hard job, I felt better than I had in 10 years. And it was really kind of eye-opening to know, okay, you actually can blow up your entire life and essentially start over. And it's better than what you had. And I think there's this fear of, um, I don't know, fear of missing out or fe like fear of loss that keeps people in situations that are not healthy for them way longer than they should. And so this kind of was like ripping the bandaid off and just finding out, oh, it's not so bad. 
Wow. And it's amazing that that also happened at the same time that you were trying to get School of Motion off the ground as well, too. So how did those two things kind of work together? So I had started School of Motion at Toil in the back of my head, hoping one day I'd figure out how School of Motion would be my full-time thing. But I had no idea. And so I didn't really think it would work. I just thought, I have to try something. And I should say, too, um, because a lot of times when I hear interviews with people who have businesses that are successful, you know, it, it can kind of sound like, oh, you tried this thing and it worked. Success well, we tri- I, tr- yeah. I tried other things yeah. that didn't work. Yep. Like I, I spent six months, I taught myself to code. I was, I wanted to make iPhone apps and I thought that would be, that would be a good way of doing passive income. Uh, the first thing School of Motion ever sold was a Cinema 4D plugin. That, that didn't go very well. That, you know, so that there were there were things we tried that just didn't work. Like the coding thing, I invested six months and it didn't go anywhere. You know, and, and so when we moved to Florida, School Motion stopped for a while. I didn't do anything with it. And I was kind of getting used to teaching at Ringling, learning how, how that world works. And then after a couple of months, I said, okay, um, I still have School of Motion. And it was interesting because actually a lot of the students that I was teaching actually knew of me. Um, and School of Motion was tiny back then. Like not many people had heard of it. But the students at Ringling, a bunch of them had, and and they kept saying, like, when's the next School of Motion thing coming out? Um, so I started, like, staying up late and making more tutorials. And at that point, I had kind of saturated myself with so many podcasts and books and kind of business tips that I actually started building an audience and building an email list, um, tracking where my audience was coming from and things like that. So I stayed at Ringling for a year. And at the end of that year, I made a decision to leave because I have this like entrepreneurial streak that's a blessing and a curse. Uh, and it's a curse because teaching at Ringling is probably the one of the, it's not even a question, it's the best job I've ever had, aside from running School of Motion. But like, it is a sweet deal. Like, you're in this beautiful place. The students are amazing. The facilities are amazing. The faculty's amazing. You're geeking out all day long on brand new computers. And I mean, it's insane. And, and you know, Orion Tate from Buck is coming and talking. And David Lewandowski's coming and talking. And it, it's unreal, man. And, and, and then you get the whole summer off, you know? <laughs> it was pretty amazing. But it's a big bureaucracy. It's a college. And there are things, there are things about it that kind of rubbed me really the wrong way. There's kind of this weird dichotomy with colleges, I think, that people don't really talk about, which is all of the faculty, all the administration, they are aware that there's a a double edge to the sword, I guess, right? You learn a ton. It's an amazing way to learn anything, graphic design, you know, interior design, animation. But there is a heavy price to be paid for that, especially at a a place like Ringling. So there's a combination of all that stuff I decided just wasn't a great fit, so I left. But I had the summer where I was still getting paid because they pay you for the year, even though you have the summer off. So I had these three months where I was like, I'm still getting a paycheck. So I don't need to freelance and I don't have to do anything. And I know I'm not going back. So why don't I just give school motion a try? Like really put everything into it just to see what happens. And so what I did was I did this series called the 30 days of after effects. And basically every Monday, every day, Monday through Friday for six weeks, I released a tutorial and these were like an hour long, some of them really in depth. It was like the tutorials I had always wished someone would have made. Like when I was starting out, um, there were like some advanced ones. There were like little series where I I took three videos and I did a full kinetic type piece based on the never ending story because it's one of my favorite movies. And, And in the middle of that, 
I reached out to a motionographer thinking, hey, maybe they'll think this is interesting. Justin Cohn wrote back to me and he was like, wow, this is pretty crazy that you're doing this. And they wrote this article about it. Um, and slowly but surely, like traction started started to happen. And by the end of that, I had an email list with like 6,000 names on it of people who had opted in to like hear more from School of Motion. And then I hired a business coach and I was like, okay, how the hell, what do I do next? Because <laughs> that's kind of where my knowledge stopped right there. I had no idea what to do next. Hired a business coach and then... Three months later, uh, we launched our first course. I mean, that, that really made the biggest difference. Getting someone who knew more about business than me to tell me what to do. Yeah, tell me about this business coach. Like, what she comes on and, and she's like, this is what you should do next? Like, were, were there specific goals that you had in mind with bringing on a business coach? So what I had, I'll tell you what I expected. What I expected was the business coach to tell me what to do and that they would be things I didn't know I should be doing, right? I thought there was knowledge I didn't have. Turns out that what I, I knew exactly what I should do. That's so, so this is interesting, right? This is something I see in our industry, in every industry, like it's pretty universal. The obstacle, I guess, to getting from where you are to where you wanna be is generally not I don't know how, it's I'm afraid to. And so for me, right, what I did was I made a course and I asked people to buy it, right? You know, I knew how to do both of those things. I was terrified to ask people to buy it, right? Because what I was afraid was that I would say, okay, everything I've given away right so far is free. So you're used to free. And there's YouTube, which has millions of hours of After Effects tutorials for free. And Grayscale Gorilla, all their videos are free. And this asshole is going to come along and say, <laughs> ah, I've got some even better videos you got to pay for. And I was terrified that... I, people would just say no, they'd get mad, I'd get hate mail, right? And and that, that's like, that, that's that downward spiral. Like you think, oh, I'm going to end up homeless if I do this, right? One piece of advice my coach gave me, which was really brilliant, and I had heard people say to do this, I was just afraid to, was to ask people to buy the course before you make the course. Because this is, there's this interesting thing that happens when you have a business idea. You tell other people about it. You tell friends about it. And they say, oh, that's a really good idea. Yeah, I'd buy that. And then when you say, okay, buy it. Well, no, that's when you really find out if people are willing to pay for this. Uh, so what I did was I emailed all 6,000 people on my list. And I said, hey, I have this idea for like the best course ever. I'd like to tell you about it. And I did a webinar, like a live webinar. And... When I sent out that email with the link to the webinar, I only had 100 spots available on the webinar, and those spots filled up in like five minutes. So I knew, oh, that was like the first sign, okay, like I'm kinda on to something. And then I do the webinar, and, and I basically described my idea for a course, which now is called Animation Bootcamp. It's our most successful course by far. Um, I think we're, we've got like over 1,700 alumni of just that course. And you know, I just described it, like this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking there's like, you know, every week there's going to be a couple of video lessons. They'll be really long, really in-depth. They're going to focus really tightly on animation. Then you're going to have a homework assignment. You're going to do it and you're going to upload it. And I'm going to critique your work. I'm going to use frame.io or we used Whipster at first and, and, and I'm critiquing it. And there's going to be a Facebook group. We're all going to be in there and I'm going to be motivating you and showing you cool work. I also convinced, I don't know how, but I convinced uh, Jorge and Sonder and some other amazing animators to let me interview them. So that's part of it. And it's going to be awesome. And, and here it is, right? Uh, and, and here's the link. And it sold out in like 10 minutes. 
like boom, done. Um, and then my email inbox blew up. Oh my God, please open more spots. Please open more spots. I need this. I need this. So before I ever spent one second making the course, uh, I actually had already gotten customers for it and I knew that people would buy it. So what that let me do is take three or four months, about four months to make that first course. And it was just me and I had a part-time assistant at the time. She's full-time with us now um, named Amy Unger. She helped me put it together. She helped me critique some of the homework, but there was no risk at that point. And so I built that course and then the second time we ran it, it was done and I hired I hired staff to help me with the critiques and stuff like that. And it it was instantly clear the second that first sale went in and, and all those seats filled up instantly, I realized this is what School of Motion is going to be. This is how we're going to turn this into a sustainable business. How, it's very interesting. So you had Toil, which was a business that you created, right? You thought it was what you wanted to do. You, you kind of got there. You were miserable, right? You, you made a massive change, um, found teaching, but now you, you're building up another business. And so it's like you're, you're kind of back where you were. Um, but how has that transition gone? I mean, obviously, there's, there's a lot of differences, but I don't know. I think that's an interesting kind of yeah. progression. So you're, you're, you're very perceptive and you bring up something that I, I'm definitely struggling with this. Um, and I think I wrote about it in the motionographer article is that I'm just wired to always be chasing more and I, I can't help it. You know, one, I still have the same business coach, by the way, and and um, because it worked out really well, obviously. And w- probably the thing I talk about the most with her is more like lifestyle things. Because what happens, what happens with me is I get an idea and I just obsess over it. It's like a lot of creatives, actually. You know, I'm sure you can you can relate to that. Most people listening probably can relate to that. And that's useful for certain phases of your life and certain phases of a business, but it's not sustainable. If, uh, and, and so that's kind of a lesson I learned at Toil because the way Toil was set up and there was a lot of structural things, but just the structure of the company and the way we got clients and stuff like that, that um, it was not sustainable in the long term. And, and in hindsight, it should have been obvious and it wasn't. So I took those lessons and with School of Motion, it's designed – from day one, right? And I guess when I say day one, I mean once this course launched, uh, it was designed to be scalable and to one day be able to run without Joey Kornman because there are still plenty of times, like right now is one of them, <laughs> in the middle of a book launch and we have another course launching, uh, you know, and we just launched a new website that's completely from scratch, you know, and we've had developers working on it for nine months. There's a lot going on, and so it's easy to get overwhelmed again, um, except all the other pieces of my life that were out of balance while I was at Toil are now in balance. So as hard as I feel like I work, I generally don't work more than 40 hours a week, and most weeks it's less. I can work from home. I have an office uh, that's like five miles from my house. I can bike there in 15, 20 minutes. It's really hot in Florida, so sometimes I bought a little scooter uh, like for, for hot summer days. Um, and I swim every morning. I see my kids, like I can go to work whenever I want. I can leave whenever I want. You know, our entire team is distributed. So there are, including me, there's four other full-time employees currently for school of motion. They're all over the country. Um, and we just, you know, we, we, we meet like usually once a day and we'll talk on, you know, uh, video conferencing like zoom or Skype. And, you know, I'm I'm going to CrossFit in the morning. I mean, like all the things that were missing, having to like 
get up at six in the morning and catch an hour and a half train and then be there till whenever the client said it was approved and all that stuff, that's gone. So when I work hard, everything else is balanced and I know that this hard work is cumulative now. Everything I'm doing today will keep paying off if I do this right forever, not just for that job and then that job's done and now I have to go find another one. Yeah. No, that seems to be the difference that you you were able to overcome, right? You were able to, you know, your time isn't just equal with, you know, time equals money. It's like time equals something that will continue to make money over time, which is a product. Right. Well, and, and this is the thing, you know, I'm sure you see this, Zach. Like, it's like when, if you think in this way, I would like to scale myself so that my income is no longer tied to how many hours I put in. As a motion designer, the obvious way to do that is to open a studio and hire people to, you know, to, to do the work for you. And it's so hard, (laughs) you know, it's like hard to make, it's really hard to make that work and it's getting harder to make it work. And so there was this other realization I had, which I'd like to point out to people. And this is something that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. It's really pretty interesting. There used to be this setup for teachers specifically. Okay. So, you know, the saying, if, if you can't do teach, yeah, Right. Have you, have you ever heard that? Okay. Um, I disagree with it wholeheartedly, of course, um, as almost every teacher would. Okay. But there isn't kernel of truth to it. And the truth is this. If you, if your goal is to set yourself up financially really well, teaching was never the way to do it ever. Right. I mean, you know, you go and teach. I mean, even if you get a job at Ringling, I mean, they pay their faculty great. You're paid very well for a teacher, but opening your own studio, you can make three, four times as much. Even just freelancing, you know, you can make two, three times as much. And so teaching was, it never attracted entrepreneurs to it the way studios did and, you know, software companies and things like that. Well, that's flipped entirely on its head now. There's this revolution because of the internet and just how easy it is to, you know, you buy ScreenFlow for a hundred bucks and you can record like the same tutorials that we do at School of Motion or that Grayscale Gorilla does or that lynda.com does or any of these companies. Um, and you can go to, you know, there's websites like um, Kajabi and um, Teachable and Coursera and you can sign up, you know, for 50 bucks a month and open your own school and charge for courses or get on Gumroad. It's so easy now. And if you do that and you do it right and you, you have to learn how to market the courses and customer support and all of those things, you have now built a business that can scale to infinity. And so I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing companies like Masterclass. I don't know if you're familiar with that, yeah. Zach. But oh, yeah. Masterclass, amazing company. And they'll get, you know, Serena Williams to do a course yeah. on tennis. Aaron Sorkin's um, screenwriting. Know, for, yeah, it's, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, Ver- Werner Herzog yeah. talking about documentary filmmaking. It's incredible. You could never get those people to do a class before, but now it financially it makes sense. You know, for us, like we we just invested like – quarter of a million bucks in our website. And why, why the hell would we do that? Uh, because it actually makes financial sense. Um, the technology's allowed us to build a school without needing millions of dollars to build a school. And I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing, um, you're seeing so many really high-level artists get into the game, Chris Doe and Ash Thorpe, because it's no longer just a way to give back and feel good, which of course it does. But there's also a financial reward. And again, it's not about the money part. It's about the time freedom part. If you can make a course and spend six months making it, pouring your your soul into it, but then it can pay your bills for the rest of the year, that's pretty awesome. That's a pretty big incentive to teach instead of just doing you know, client work. 
Well, around the subject of, of teaching, uh, teaching is a skill of its own too, right? I'm, my, my wife is a teacher and like, she's incredible. Like she's, she's an, an unbelievable teacher and it's a craft that she has been developing for years and years and years. Um, and it's definitely something that like she gets better at as she does it more often. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that's a skill that you've had to learn and able to do all the things that you're doing right now. So could you talk a little, a little bit about what it takes to become a teacher? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I started teaching by doing tutorials. Um, and I guess even before that, like what I always loved, my favorite part at Toil was um, sitting with junior animators and interns um, and freelancers that would come in and working through problems with them. That was kind of the thing I found like I was good at was, you know, in After Effects, okay, how are we actually going to do this? I could always figure out some slick way to do it, write an expression, plug this in here, whatever. And I loved it because you do it and now that person, you, you've just raised the value of that person for the rest of their life, right? And yeah, maybe it's in some small, tiny little way, but after doing that incrementally, you've really like built this whole new person and you get to see the, the, the gratitude from them, but also you get to now live vicariously through them as they go off and they do stuff and it's addicting. And that's why, that's why the best teachers, that, that's why they're in it. Because when you explain something and they finally get it and the light bulb goes off and then they're excited about it and then a few years later, they're doing it and they're getting paid for it and they literally can support their families like doing this thing you showed them. It's really addicting. It's really, really fun. So, I think when you're teaching in person, so it's a little different on the internet. When you're teaching in person, it's really about how excited you are about the material. All of the teachers in my life from elementary school up through college, uh, there were teachers that knew the material better than any other human being on earth. At Boston University, I had teachers that were literally the top in their field, but they were horrible, horrible teachers. Right. Um, and you could tell you could just tell they just didn't care about teaching. They weren't enthusiastic about it. And the ones that I really loved and that I remember, they were they would just geek out about the same thing they were teaching you. I think that's super important. It, you know, if, if you're making a tutorial because you think it'll get a lot of views and you don't actually care about what you're saying, then people will watch it and they'll click away and, and you know, and they don't care. And if you're in a classroom, even in a classroom where every person in that class is paying $800 per class to be there, uh, they just won't pay attention. They'll zone out and you're wasting everybody's time. Um, so luckily, I've never had to teach something that I didn't care about. Uh, you know, I, when I was at Ringling, I was teaching uh, an animation class, basically an After Effects class, and then a Cinema 4D class. And then I was helping the seniors with their thesis projects, which was basically creative directing and, and technical directing with them. And it was just fun and it was awesome. And I, I, I love demoing and showing things and like, yeah, you could do it this way, but watch this. Now you could do it this way. And the, and the class goes, oh. So teaching in person, it's really about how excited you are about what you're teaching so that you can like connect people to it. So on the internet, it's a, it's a little bit different because the internet basically gives people the option to watch for 10 seconds and leave. Right? In a classroom, you don't have that. So on the internet, the bar is actually higher. And so we talk about it a lot internally at School of Motion. Like, you can't just be excited about the material and teach it well. Uh, and that's a whole other topic. But you also need to hook people. There needs to be an arc. You need to have, you know, how do you, what's the production value, like, kind of level that, that's necessary to get people to even watch past the first 10 seconds? You know, 
we're experimenting with things like should the instructor be on screen? Because even if you know, like you see most of the screen is After Effects, but then there's a tiny little head in the in the bottom. Uh, that's a little bit more engaging, right? Or we'll see. Like we we have to do it, you know, for months and, and measure and see. So it's still kind of the wild west a little bit. But what we found is that some people. So here, I'll tell you this. So we we at some point realized that we need help making content for School of Motion. If you're an internet company and your marketing channel is content, right? That when we put out a free tutorial, it's marketing. It's to get you to come to the site, right? Um, Grayscale Gorilla, Video Copilot, exact same model as them. I stole it from them. Come on. So if, if that's your model, you need to make a lot of content. And it was just me and, uh, and Amy at School of Motion at the time. And so we had this great idea. Let's put out a call for contributors. And I, I put together like a three-hour course explaining all of our production standards, how our teaching philosophy works, um, how much we pay you, what equipment you need, all these things. We had hundreds of people apply. And from that batch, we got one person that could do it. One person. So teaching on the internet actually, to, to do it, at, we have very high standards, but you know, there's a reason that there's only one Andrew Kramer and there's only one Nick Campbell. Um, I was talking to Nick the other day and I told him he won the lottery with Chad Ashley. You know, the Chad's been over there for months now and he's the same kind of deal, like really good, engaging uh, presence. It's hard to find that. One of our uh, instructors, he's building a course for us right now, Jake Bartlett. He's another guy. He's another guy with that gift. You, when you hear him talk, you like him. He knows what he's talking about. And then here's the other thing. You have to be good at breaking things down. Uh, I'm sure we've all seen tutorials where it's like, you know, how to make fire in After Effects. And what it is is just a list of steps you do. Now click this and set it to point two. Now click this and go to frame 12. And, you know, and it's, it's telling you how but not why. Um, and if you and, – and it's that same thing, you know. They're giving you a fish. They're not teaching you to fish. And so when we teach anything, we dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and try to figure out how do we teach it so that no one they will never have to watch another tutorial on this topic again. And that's the level that I think you have to get into if you're going to be competing in this space online. It used to be the bar was lower, but now, you know, you've got Learn Squared. You've got MoGraph Mentor. Grayscale Gorilla has a course. We've got lots of courses you know, I guarantee that like other people are going to get into the game that, that are amazing. You can't just be good at After Effects and know how you do it and just teach people. So I, you know, put this effect on and change the settings to this. And there you go. That's my tutorial. I don't think that's going to be good enough anymore. Yeah. So I don't know if that answered your question. That was quite a ramble. No, no, no. Went on, but <laughs> no, that was great. I, I'd, now I'd love to get back to the book a little bit. I mean, it's been, you say you've been working on it for a year and a half, which is, I mean, that's, that's a long time coming, but uh, it's here. It, it looks beautiful. I'm holding it in my hands. And let's talk a little bit about, about the book itself. I mean, it's called the, the Freelance Manifesto. We talked a little bit about it at the, at the top. Is there a core kind of like question that you're trying to answer with, with the book itself? The book, I, I describe it as a Trojan horse. Like, when people buy the book, they'll buy it because it tells you how to freelance successfully as a motion designer. It's written for motion designers. So it's, it's interesting because I've actually gotten a lot of questions about this. The tactics in it will work for any type of freelancing, graphic design, copywriting, doesn't matter. It's written for motion designers, though. All of the examples in it are motion design centric. And that part of the book is to get you in to teach you to do it. But really what I want the book to do is to hopefully, and this is a very lofty goal, but 
I hope that it does for some people what the four-hour work week did for me. And just kind of crack your head open a little bit and say, oh, there is a totally different way I could be approaching life. You know, when, when you're a motion designer, right, there's usually a few things that motivate you, right? Uh, money is one. If you need money, then that like you will do work that you wouldn't do if you didn't need it, right? But the thing that drives most motion designers, the ones I talk to, is doing cool stuff, getting better, improving, and doing doing cool work for clients. You know, the kind of stuff your company does, Zach. I mean, you guys do amazing work. But for every identity visuals out there, there is, you know, 50 to 100 companies that are not doing work that they're proud of. They're doing the work they can get, right? And there's this catch-22. Uh, we At the first blend, we actually had this whole panel kind of about this with uh, Ryan Honey and, and Jay from uh, Giant Ant, the guys from Tendril. You have to be willing to do work you want to do before someone's willing to pay you to do it. There's that, right? You want to be doing cool stuff. You know, you look at what Odd, Oddfellows is like my favorite studio at the moment. Like you look at what they're doing. You want to be doing that kind of stuff and get paid to do it. You're probably going to have to have some of that on your reel. Right, you can't wait for people to to ask you to do it and trust that you can do it. Right, so how do you make that happen? How do you actually get stuff on your reel that you're not getting paid for? Well, you need time. Right, so this is like the core the core tenant of the freelance manifesto is that it's not about money, it's about time. And freelancing, the interesting thing about it is that you have right off the bat more control of your time because you have an option that you don't have when you're on staff, which is you can say no. It's it's easier said than done, of course, uh, but you can. You can actually turn down jobs and say no for the next three weeks. I'm working on this spec piece. And the other thing is you can, you can kind of, it's like a gun, <laughs> I guess. I don't know if this is a good metaphor, but it's like you have a gun and all of a sudden you can aim it. And you're like, okay, I want to take a month and I want to book be Grandinetti to do some sick boards for me that I can animate and create a spec piece that's going to get me the work I want. Okay, I need a month for that and I need to pay B for her time. Um, cool. So how do I do that? Well, you don't do that by going and freelancing for the coolest studio. You do that by reaching out to the ad agency and doing their internal video for Bank of America, mm -hmm. right? Um, and We've done you flat those. bid it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, I mean, yeah. it's just, and studios know this. Yeah. Um, I remember Ryan Honey from Buck saying that I think he said it was 90% of the work Buck does does not end up on their 93, website. I think. I, yeah, I wrote yeah, it okay. down. I remember that. Yeah. It blew my it's mind. some ridiculous yeah. number. Yeah. Right. Um, and freelancers typically don't operate that way. All right. Or, or they, they may operate that way because they're not happy with the work they're doing, but they don't operate that way intentionally. You should intentionally do work you do not want to do. Um, because it will pay you better. The the person that kind of put this in my head, by the way, and this is very timely, uh, is David Lewandowski. He came, he visited Ringling, and I got to have dinner with him, and he incepted this idea in my head that when you're doing commercial work, just don't even try to make it cool. Like, do your best, right? And and he he wasn't saying do a shitty job. He was saying don't get your don't get personally invested in it. Like, if you're doing a dog food commercial. <laughs> be aware that that's what it is and don't even worry if it's going to be on your reel try to get paid well for it so then afterwards you don't have to work for a month your bills are paid um and david just released the the third in his trilogy of naked rubber people <laughs> yeah Very excited. that's right oh my gosh <laughs> yeah so yeah, it's so good so good 
Um, so yeah, so so that's kind of the core idea in the book is that freelancing is a tool that you can use. There are times in your life when you know, I so I interviewed a bunch of people for the book. I, I got to interview um, David Stanfield and Adam Plouffe. And Adam, in the book, he talks about um, there was a time in his life that, like, they had some financial stress. They needed money. So, you know, if you're on staff somewhere and the work's no good and the pay's not great, you literally are stuck. You have no options. But as a freelancer, especially if you do it right, you have the option of saying no to jobs that are really cool, that would be great for your reel, and saying yes and going after work that's soul-sucking, but is going to pay those bills and, and get you in a position where you can take two weeks off. You can take three months off. Um, Kyle Predke, he's also in the book, and you know he, he talks about that you know he wanted to go um, snowboarding for a month up in Montana, I think, and um, you know, and he brought his laptop so he could do a little work from there. But basically, like you know, you can design this life um, as a freelancer that you you just can't um, typically at a studio now. I said this to you before we started recording, Zach, that like, you know, your studio and studios like Buck and Giant Ant and Tendril, I mean, these are the this is the, the cream of the crop. And if you're working at a studio like this, you're probably pretty happy <laughs> to be there most days. Um, but I can tell you, because we have a lot of students, a ton of our students are the lone wolf at, you know, a marketing agency or they're the one after effects artists for their local sports team or something like that. Um, and they aren't completely satisfied. And, and so, um, you know, and, and freelancing is a very scary cliff to jump off of. Um, so hopefully the book kind of, it's a little bit of a parachute, you know, and it can help you. And, and once you've kind of internalized that you can do it and that maybe you should, uh, it tells you exactly how to, you know, get work. Yeah. And I think one of those scary things about jumping off the cliff is how do I find work? Right. And I, and I know you talk a little bit about that in your book. Could you could you kind of give us some of that, that what, what we'll find in the book more extensively? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you exactly how to find work. And uh, <laughs> so a big portion of the book is how to find work, because that's the biggest fear that, you know, that people have to go freelancing. I, you're you're afraid that you'll go freelance and you'll put your name out there and zero people will hire you and you'll you'll blow through your savings in a month and you're homeless and you're living in a van <laughs> down by the river. So the way that I've seen freelancers try to find work that doesn't work is you you put your portfolio together, you put a website up, you find like the three or four studios in your area let you know, like if you live in an area that even has studios, um, and you send your reel out, right? And you maybe you go to their website and they have a you know like a contact form or something, and you send it there and you write a, a message. Hey, I'm a local freelancer, and if you guys need any After Effects help, let me know. Here's my rate. Thanks. Right? And that is not the way you get work. Okay. So this is one of the things I learned running Toil. Freelancers are way easier to hire than companies, right? They're less expensive. There's less risk. So, so you can do stupid stuff like that and, and kind of do it wrong and still get booked, okay? As a company, you'll never get work that way. And the reason is people hire people they like. So there's this whole phase of, of finding a client where first, before you ever ask them to hire you, they need to like you. They have to like you. So in, in the book, we kind of break the, this process up into five phases. Um, and the first two phases are I know you and I like you. So, right, and, and there's like ways to achieve both of those. So first, the client has to know who you are. Second, they have to like you. I have, 
when I was freelancing in Boston, I was um, very often not the best After Effects artist in the room, but I was I was usually the most responsive. I was the best communicator. I was the most professional, um, and that, to be honest, meant a lot more to my clients than my After Effects jobs. So this is interesting, Zach. We did a survey a couple years ago now. And we reached out to uh, a bunch of freelancers and a bunch of producers, creative directors, studio owners. And we were basically asking, um, asking them all these questions and getting data. And so for the studio owners, producers, we asked, we asked them to rank, you know, in priority order, basically, um, some different characteristics of freelancers. And we had things like talent, things like, um, you know, reliability, hygiene, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Uh, and I expected talent to be the number one thing, right? Because isn't that obvious that it's motion design, it's an art, and so you wanna hire the best artist you can. And reliability trumped talent two to one, right? And I've seen that in my career um, when I was hiring freelancers. There were freelancers that were brilliant and you'd see their work and you're like, man, they, you know, these people have a gift. They're just really good at this. But then they'd back out of a booking like at the last minute. Um, so I'd never hire them again. Right, so you have to sort of build that trust and show that you're professional. Okay, so all right, so let me let me get down to tactics here. So here's exactly what I would do, and I walk through this. If you buy the book, there's these links kind of sprinkled throughout, and one of the links takes you to a 20 minute video where I picked two cities, Cleveland and Tampa, which is close to where I live, and I prospected and I find leads literally in front of you to show you that this works. So the first thing you want to do is you want to identify companies that might need motion design. A mistake most, a lot of freelancers make is they say, okay, well, like I know motion design studios will hire me, so that's who I need to reach out to, okay? There's motion design studios, that's obvious, but there's also marketing companies, ad agencies, production houses, post-production houses, um, and just about every medium and large size company in the world now, um, you know, Google, Apple, Bose, they all have in-house production facilities and hire motion designers and a lot of freelancers, okay? So there's a couple of easy ways. One is to just get on Google and say, you know, so we're, let's talk about Nashville, okay? So Nashville motion design, Nashville motion graphics, Nashville video, Nashville post-production, Nashville production, Nashville marketing, Nashville ad agencies. And really quickly, you're gonna get a long list of companies, okay? So you start with companies. All right, so you find some, you know, mid-sized ad agency in Nashville you've never heard of. Cool. All right, now you could go to their website and I bet they have a contact form and they may even have like a, an HR department and you can, you know, apply for a job there. If you do that, the person looking at your work um, and looking at your message they typically are not in a position to connect what you do with some project going on at the company, right? They're looking at it from like a standardized way. So what I always do, and, and I've never had this backfire, is I find the right person at the company. So I actually do this in the, in the book. There's an example where I use the example in Cleveland because I don't, I don't know anyone in Cleveland, right? And I found out that in Cleveland, and I found this through Google, uh, McGraw-Hill Education, which is a huge publishing company, they have an office there, and they had a listing on a jobs board for a motion graphics artist, okay? So that's a perfect example of the kind of client that probably will pay you really well, because they're a huge company, but the work is probably not gonna be that sexy, okay? And you need some of those. So 
you've got the company, how do you identify the person at that company? So if it's a small studio, if it's a small ad agency, a lot of times there's like an Our Team page. And these aren't always up to date, so you always have to double check with LinkedIn, but I always look for the producer, or if I can't find a producer, I'd look for um, like a, an art director or creative director. And worst case, I find the editor or the designer there, and I reach out to them and I say, hey, your work is awesome. I'm just curious, like, do you guys ever hire freelancers? Who would I talk to about that? And usually people are nice and they'll say, oh, here's our producer and her email address, right? Now, the trick I really like to do. So LinkedIn, I don't know if, if many motion designers realize this, LinkedIn is your best friend. Not for like reaching out to people and get building a network. I mean, that's not really, that's not gonna help you. Here's what you do. You get on LinkedIn and you sign up for one month of their recruiter they have this like product called Recruiter and you can pay for the light version. I think currently it's like 60 bucks a month. Pay for one month of it. And what that's gonna do is open up advanced search features on LinkedIn. And so now what you can do is you can um, kind of constrain your search to a geolocation like Nashville and you can do keyword searches. Anyone with the, key, the keyword video in their job description will pop up. And I guarantee if you do this for Nashville, you're gonna have hundreds of names pop up, right? And you'll find people at companies you would never guess do video with the title video producer or project manager, but in the description it says, I help you know create videos for blah, 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 right? And all of a sudden, you now have a lead that I guarantee no one else is going after, okay? Everyone's emailing Buck. I bet Identity Visuals gets lots of reels. Um, Toil, we always got unsolicited reels. But I bet that, you know, the, the lone project manager who, you know, says she makes videos at McGraw-Hill um, is not getting a lot of reels from people, okay? So now you've identified a person. And, you know, I recommend identify 50 people. Uh, you know, identify a hundred people. It's so fast to find people. And then you've got so-and-so's name at McGraw Hill. Now you need to get an email address for that person because you want to contact them directly. All right. Uh, so to do that, there's a lot of tools out there. Um, Voila Norbert. It's a really weird sounding website. And you type in someone's name and you type in the domain name where their email address is going to be. So you'd do a little research, you'd find out mheducation.com is the URL, cool. And you put in, you know, Zach Dixon at mheducation.com and voila Norbert will basically use some voodoo and it tries every variation of potential email address. So it'd be like Z Dixon, Zach D, Zach.Dixon, Zach.D, you know, like Zach Dixon's with, with no space. And it, and it basically pings the email server, and if it finds it, it gives it to you and it tells you, okay? Now, that, does, that doesn't always work. So there's another one uh, that I've been using more and more called Rocket Reach, and that uses a bunch of places, and, and, it, and it's amazing like how well it works. Um, and there's a bunch of other tools. In, in the book, I list, I think, like a dozen tools that can help you because you kind of have to use them all, and sometimes one works and the other doesn't. But I have like a 90% hit rate getting people's email address. And then there's this really cool tool called Reportive, uh, which is a, a Chrome extension for Gmail that verifies for you automatically if that email address is the right one, okay? And it uses LinkedIn to do that. Cool. So now you found someone at a company that probably no freelancers reached out to. Uh, you know their name. You know their email address. Now you want to build rapport with them, right? I remember I said people hire people they like. So you want to make them like you. Now, I don't mean like 
literally try to be friends with them. I mean, you just have to show them that like you're a nice person and, 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 and ideally that you're like them in some way. This is like psychology 101, right? So a trick I always use is, um, and this works so well, <laughs> if, uh, you know, when people set up their LinkedIn profile, and a lot of times if you Google their name, their, their Facebook profile pops up and you can't see everything, but you can see a picture or two of them. People are very picky about what picture of themselves they use, right? So if the picture of the person you want to contact is them on top of a mountain like this, like they just hiked a mountain, it tells you a lot about them. They're probably active. They're definitely into the outdoors. They go hiking. They probably are into challenging themselves, things like that. So when you write that email, you can use that information to connect with them. Um, a story I love to tell is I wanted to hire Lucas Brooking. So I don't know if you're familiar with him. Oh, yeah. He's one of the For sure. Yeah, one of the best. Uh, Joe Donaldson called him the best art director in the world, wow. actually. Wow. Uh, so he's I mean, incredible. He is incredible, yeah. He is incredible. So uh, I wanted him to design a shirt for School of Motion, and I didn't know him, and he's like super high-level, in-demand guy. So what I did was I got on his website, and I saw that he had – I looked through all of his work, and I found that he had designed these heavy metal band posters. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I Googled all the bands that were on them, and I found out he was in a band. Oh, wow. And they were his band. And it was like death metal, like, you know, <laughs> right? So I thought that's cool because I, I, I'm into metal as well. I'm into really heavy music. And so when I wrote to him uh, and I wanted to make sure he'd open the email, my subject line was pig squeals and gutturals. <laughs> right? And that's it. Yeah. That's it. Okay. And of course he opens it. Oh my God. When I saw the subject line, I had to read this, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so when you write to this person, the subject line of your email is like the missile and the body of your email is the payload. Right, we all we're all familiar with clickbait, and I hate clickbait, and I and I don't like to use that term, but that's the closest analog to it. The subject line literally it has one job: get this email opened. Okay, so you're now going to write an email to this person. Any anything you know about them that's publicly available, you can sneak in. All right, so an easy example would be if you're in Nashville or if you're in Cleveland, you would say Cleveland-based freelance designer available for free. You know, something like that. Um, there's this concept I talk about a lot in the book called a trigger word where like Zach, you, you, everyone listening can't see this, but he has like a pretty long beard now. If, uh, if I said, you know, freelance bearded after effects artist available, right? <laughs> You'd probably think that's weird, but you would open that email. Yeah, oh yeah. There's yeah. no way you there's no way you wouldn't open it. <laughs> you know, so it, you using like the the location, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of rules about subject lines we go over, keep them short, things like that. But you want that email to get opened. And then in the body of the email, that's where you connect with that person. And that first email you send is not to get you booked. It's to make them like you. That's it. You do not ask for work in that first email. Never ask for work in the first email ever. If you don't listen to anything else I say, that's the one tip. It'll change everything. Try Look at it as I just want this person to know I exist and think, oh, that's a pretty cool person, right? Cool. So in the email, I always open with uh, something that will connect. So for example, I've, ha I've seen a lot of people on LinkedIn even, the picture that they choose, they consciously choose to represent them to the world is them with like their family. Pretty common. If you have a family, if you have kids, you, you just talk about them all the time. It's a big part of your life. Now, I'm a dad. And if I see that someone I want to contact is also a mom or a dad, I will sneak that in. So the first line of my email might be, hey, I'm a freelance motion designer slash dad living in, you know, whatever city. 
you know, it may seem like, oh, like, you know, that's something people say. Like when you're a dad, you're a mom, you sneak that stuff in, right? It's very targeted. It's very tactical because if you're a dad and someone else says they're a dad, you like them, right? It's just, it's just kind of, it's human nature. You like people that are like you. Boom. That's the, that's the first part of the email, right? Then you get into the meat a little bit. And I have this, um, this concept I talk about, I call it sandwiching the selling in this first email. All, you're not really selling you're, you're, but you are kind of in a roundabout way asking them to check your workout. And so you want to sandwich that part with making them feel good. Okay. So that first part makes them feel good. All right. And then the second part is, you know, I'm a freelance motion designer, blah, blah, blah. My specialty is After Effects. You know, I love the work you guys are doing. I just want to let you know I'm out here. Here's my reel and my portfolio if you're so inclined to look at it. And you basically position it as, hey, you guys are awesome. I just wanted to say hello. If you're inclined, here's my work. You're not asking them to book you. You're not even really asking them to look at your work. You're just laying it out there for them, okay? If they like you and they see a link in your email, they're probably going to click it, okay? Um, and then you close with, can't wait to see what you guys are up to next, you know? Or, or if it's like a, you know, like uh, I, when, when I reached out to Bose for freelance work, Bose is, a, you know, everyone's probably familiar, but uh, just in case they make, you know, really high-end audio products, um, headphones and stuff, and they're based in Massachusetts. Um, I reached out to them and I literally, the best pair of headphones I've ever had is the Bose noise canceling headphones. Yeah, I've got them too. So I would use that. Yeah. yeah, I would totally use that. All right. I would say thank you. And by the way, the noise canceling headphones saved my life. I'm a father of three. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You close with that. Cool. So you, all they've gotten is an email from someone who's kind of like them and writes in a very friendly tone and follows a bunch of other rules um, and doesn't ask for anything. And that's very rare to get an email where they didn't ask for anything. And so, and there's a link right there on its own line. And I, and I tell people, make it a pretty URL. So don't make it HTTP colon slash slash blah, blah, right? Go in, in Gmail, type out summer real 2017, highlight it, um, hit command K and put the URL in. So it looks nice, right? Cool. That email is probably going to get open, probably going to get read. But how the hell do you know that, right? You need to, it's ideal if you know they opened it. Well, there's a very cool product called MailTrack. MailTrack.io, I think, is the URL. Uh, and you can use that to track email opens. So you know if they opened it, you know when they opened it. And if they opened it and didn't write back to you, that tells you something, right? Um, and at the very least, you can follow up in three weeks and just say, hey, just wanted to make sure you didn't have any questions about my, you know, something like that. You can also track link clicks. So if they clicked your link, you know, hey, they opened it, they went to my website, right? And if they went to your website, you can assume they watched your reel while they were there. So think about how valuable that information is. Now, there's a whole lot more to it. Setting yourself reminders automatically. There's tools to do this to follow up with people. One of the things that blows my mind, and I fell victim to this too, you assume as a freelancer that if you have a great body of work and you would be perfect for a project, the producer will remember you. Oh, I remember that person had the perfect thing on their reel and they'll call you. That's not how it works. It's whoever's at the top of their mind when they need somebody. So that's why uh, occasionally doing what I call an availability check is so huge. And you can automate this. It's really easy to do. And just, you know, every three months, 
check in, say, hey, just did some new work. And by the way, just in case I'm available starting next week. Yeah. Right. I, it, I get these often. Sh- uh, and yeah. Yeah. Even if we don't have work for them, it's like, I don't know. I feel like it, it would almost seem like it's like a bother. But from like my perspective, yeah. not at all. No, it's great to hear from them and catch up. Sorry, I didn't want exactly. to interrupt. But I didn't want No, no. To, well, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because when we did the survey, we got a ton of feedback just like that. Um, you know, if you get an email from a freelancer, what's something they could say in it that would turn you off? And a lot of people said, I am pumped when I get emails from freelancers. It's not what you'd expect. So here's another interesting statistic we got from our survey. We asked all the studio owners, you know, producers, people who hire freelancers, do you have trouble finding freelancers ever? Okay. And you would think, and we kept it anonymous when we published the data in the book and stuff like that. But, but some people actually told us what studios they worked for. Big studios, small studios, ad agencies, TV networks, all across the board, 83% of people said, yes, they have, you know, not all the time, but occasionally they have trouble finding freelancers. These are big studios that like are on motionographer. You would assume they never have trouble finding freelancers ever. Why would they, right? It's because booking a freelancer, it's a combination of the right person and them being available. And this is another secret of freelancing. Good freelancers are booked all the time. They're very hard to book. We just tried to book Alan Lasseter for something. He's booked for like two months. Tell me about it, man. This is my life every day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly, right? So if someone who was local... Uh, looked up your email address and and used the beard line and they're re- and they didn't ask for anything and their reel was good. I mean, you know, from a from a freelancer perspective, you might think I'm bothering them, I'm selling, Ew, you know, like I'm cold calling essentially. But from the perspective of a producer who is constantly has this low level stress of do I have the right team? Do I have enough people? Can I, you know this job? Um, and then let's not even get into the hold system where it's like, oh, yeah. I think I might have a job. <laughs> I can't book this person yet. Yeah. How do you manage that as a freelancer? There's a, there's a lot of tricks to it and there's ways to make it easier on the producer and stuff like that. But essentially that method I just walked you through, that's how you get your foot in the door. And from there, your work has to be good enough. I should say the prerequisite is your work has to be good enough. Now, that doesn't mean Alan Lasseter level, right? Um, I am living proof that your work can be, you know, B, B plus maybe, um, and you can be turning down work in six months. Wow. Yeah. There's so much there. I even took took some notes in the middle too. Man. Yeah. And I'll say this too, like even for studio owners like yourself, Zach, like the sophistication of marketing, this is something I learned by doing School Motion, by the way, and this, this is why I really wanted to write the book, because I, I finally had it from freelancer, studio owner, and like this internet marketer perspective. It's kind of a gross word to call myself that, but I guess that's what I am. And the tools are so sophisticated that I think even even studios should be doing this stuff. Like if, you know, if you're reaching out, and you probably do a lot of re- reaching out direct to clients, reaching out to the right person at the company and not selling right away, it works even at the company level. And that's why that's why it's so it's such a cool idea for freelancers because it works for companies. And companies, it's much harder to get work because you're more expensive. Um, there's just more, there's more overhead to it. As a freelancer doing this, I mean, you could in a week be reach, have reached out to 45, 50 people. And most of them won't book you, but all you need is like 5% and to, to be booked for the rest of your life, basically. You know, if you have five freelance clients that like you, uh, you're really busy. So I, I see in, in the book, there's a, there's a chapter section called freelancing myths. Um, and that, that kind of jumped out at me because you talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, sure. Freelancing for me was such a, a, a life changer when I started doing it. And then when I kind of got good at it and found all these tricks, it opened my eyes to like, okay, you, you really can have more control over your life than, than people typically think. And so it's very powerful. And, and I knew that in the book, I, I mean, I really like sell it pretty hard, the idea of freelancing, but it's, it certainly, there are downsides to it. Um, and so I talk about that. So, um, the myths part, it's typically the, the biggest myth I think is I'll freelance and then I'll just have all this free time and I can take long vacations and I could surf six months a year. So there is some truth to that. You can do that. But here's what typically happens. Uh, you're, you're freelancing and you're booked, 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 booked. You, and, and, then I'll, and then you plan a vacation, okay? In a month, I'm going away on vacation. Cool. As soon as you book that vacation, all the work dries up and you're slow for a month. Mm-hmm. And then the day before you go on vacation, <laughs> someone wants to book you for two weeks, yeah. right? That's what happens. And so you, you got to understand that you will inevitably at some point be faced with a decision of canceling a vacation or saying no to money that you might think you need. Um, there will be slow periods. Um, when I was freelancing, I, I was very fortunate that you know I was in Boston. There weren't a lot of freelancers at the time, but I was booked almost nonstop for six years. But even in that situation, there were times when two weeks would go by and I was not booked and there was no emails, no calls coming in. Even knowing deep down in my bones that there will always be another client and there will always be more work, it's terrifying when that happens. Um, and, and nothing I say is going to prepare somebody for the first time that happens. So, you know, there's a little bit of that myth of, uh, of, of having all the free time you want. And that kind of goes hand in hand with another one, which is as a freelancer, you have total flexibility to take jobs you want and not take jobs you don't want. That's not true either, uh, because you'll find that as a freelancer, in a way, you're doing the same thing studios do, which is you're forming long-term relationships, hopefully, with these clients, and they trust you, and they'll give you great jobs to do, and then every once in a while, they're going to need you to polish turd for them, right? And and they're going to need you to do it for cheap, and they're going to need favors and stuff like that, um, and so you don't always have all the autonomy that, that you think you will. Now, one thing that's not a myth, at least in my experience, is you can make more money. Now, you do have to balance that with the fact that, um, at least in the U.S., it changes your tax situation and you're paying a little bit more in taxes. And you need to have a much bigger cash cushion as a freelancer because uh, there's a variable amount of income coming in. It's not the same every two weeks. But you can. You can certainly make more more, uh, more money. This was actually on our survey, too. We asked um, freelancers how much they earned. And uh, I think the average was around 90K a year, but I think something like 43% earned over 100K a year. And our, the highest number on the survey was 260K in one year for a freelancer. And I actually personally know this freelancer, and I know, I know I it's think I do true. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually know, um, I know, you know, I have to stress to make that kind of money, you're triple booking yourself, you're, you have a year of hell, but his goal, and this is the gets back to what I was saying about like the gun metaphor. It's uh, freelancing is a tool or a gun. You aim it where you want it. Well, he, he's in his forties is like mid forties and, and he's starting to think about retirement and stuff. Um, and he kind of did some math. He's like, if I made that, I could literally just pay my mortgage off. Like Sweet, right? And and think about like what kind of time freedom that buys you when you own the house you live in. There's no mortgage anymore, um, you know. And all of a sudden, your monthly nut goes way down. 
and so you know he just made the decision. He he, he didn't have kids, so like I, I always say, if you don't have kids, you could do anything. <laughs> it takes up so much time. Uh, but but he did it for one year. It sucked. He was miserable. He lost weight. But it's done now. He now the options available to him are far far greater. So yeah. So um, I'm trying to think of some other myths about freelancing. I mean, most people when they get into it, they're they're in it for the freedom and the money. And, you know, there are realities to both of those, but also it's not as great and not as easy as it seems. I will say this, there are myths about being on full-time that I think are probably more widespread. And the biggest one is full-time jobs are secure. This was something that was kind of, this was a real eye-opener when I started Toil and I started hiring people. And I realized finally what it means to hire someone. And it means you always have to have enough money in the bank or you have to lay that person off. And, um, you know, from the perspective of of someone on staff, they don't ever see that. And you never talk about that with your employees ever, of course, right? But it's always there. Um, And the truth is, if it comes down to it and it's either the company goes under and we close our doors or we lay off half the staff, you're laying off half the staff. Um, So job security to me, it's really kind, it's an illusion, you know, I feel like you have just as much security, if not more, as a freelancer because you can move. <laughs> you can leave and go somewhere else and freelance. You know, you can move cities and in a week be freelancing in another city. Whereas if you're full time, you are sort of anchored in one spot. And so that's not necessarily a bad thing. If, you, if you're at a great company, if you really love it, um, you know, if they're treating you well and all that stuff, that's great. But there's so many people not in that situation that there's nothing they can do at that company to change it. I remember at the first blend, I was talking to someone and I'm blanking on his name, but he asked me, um, he said, I'm on staff at this company and we're not, the work we're doing isn't great, but what I want is to elevate the level of the work my company's doing. And do you think I should like really put in the time to like make the companies real better and and help the the company build our emotion design capability or should I go freelance? And in my experience, when you're running a company and someone that works for you wants to do better work, you're all for it. Yes, I want you to do that. The reality is we have these clients, they know us for this, that's what they're paying us for. They're not paying us for this. And I can go to this client that I've worked with 10 times and do the same kind of boring thing for them or I can take a big risk and spend money and time and go get new business to sell this service that you wanna do. Most business owners aren't gonna do it. So there's also kind of a myth if you're on staff of um, this automatic progression in your career that happens. I mean, it, you know, the the American dream, right? Like you, you, you get hired by Ford Motor Company and then 20 years later you're a CFO or something. Um, in motion design, <laughs> I don't know if that's really the American dream, but <laughs> probably not. But, uh, but, but in motion design, you know, studios, e- even, you know, even large ones, there's only so much room at the top. Um, you know, they need you to do the job you were hired for and not the job you really want to be doing. It's not to say that there's no room for growth at companies. At, at good companies, there is. Um, but at a lot of companies, it's just they don't have the slack to do it. You know, they're they're trying to keep the lights on and, you know, I, I said it earlier that you have to be able to do the work you want to get paid for before you're getting paid to do it. And for companies, that's really difficult because of the overhead. That's why companies like Buck are so amazing to me, that they're able to do that. Um, I recently got to talk to Josh Harvey. Uh, he worked on the Good Books piece, like the Buck piece, one of the best pieces ever. You know, And that was six months 
you know, I think probably 30 or 40 people worked on that thing. And I guarantee you, Buck lost tons of money on that, but they're able they're able to do that. A lot of companies aren't. Yeah, and that's why they get the budgets they do, and that's why people come to them, and that's why people know them. But Absolutely. You know, you invest. I, I, I couldn't even guess what they invested, hundreds of thousands of dollars on that. But it's probably come back to them, you know, a hundredfold in, in agencies calling them up. Oh, my God, I want that for, you know, Google. Yep, <laughs> and they're like, that'll be... $10 million, please. No. But, exactly. No. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and it's cool because, um, it, when you do cool stuff, right. And, and I'll bring back to, to what David Lewandowski told me, like if you're doing commercial work, just assume it's not cool. Like don't, don't fall on your sword to make it cool because it's not, it's a client paying you to sell their shit. That's what it is. All right. So when you want to make something cool, make something cool and do it for that reason, not for money. D- try to separate those two. That's like a, a very big part of the book is I actually have this graph in there where there's kind of a correlation between how much a bu- how big a budget is for a job and how much like bile comes out of your your you know stomach when you do it. <laughs> and and honestly the best jobs are the ones that you do for free for no money or you're even paying for and it's the the middle the middle road, the no man's land. That's where most motion designers work where there's some money, not a lot, you know, not a ton. You're not going to like be able to take a month off, but there's enough and it's not like a totally crappy job, you know. It, it's it's kind of cool, you know, maybe it's for like a cool brand or something. So it's neither a good paycheck or really creatively fulfilling. So I, I recommend people try to separate those those two things. Um, but, you know, Buck does really cool stuff. They do, um, you know, they, they do the good books piece. Um, they, they've done a lot of other stuff that maybe there was a budget, but it was really, really small and they just did something amazing. And then all of a sudden, Apple comes and hires them to do something and pays whatever they want, I'm sure, you know. Um, and, and so it works on a studio level. It's much harder on the freelancer level though. It works. It's way easier to do because think about it. When was the last time everybody listening? When was the last time you took three weeks and just made a personal project, right? And if you had the ability to do it, think of new techniques you could learn. So you're improving your own skills. It's so easy now with like Twitter and the internet to collaborate. Our alumni do it all the time. They, they just like, one's a good designer, one's a good animator. They collaborate. Now they both have a personal project that's getting them work, right? All you need to do that is time. Um, and if you're not doing that, you'll find you might be able to raise your day rate. You might slowly get more clients and maybe the work gets cooler, but it's really easy to plateau for years and years if you're not doing that. Totally. Well, we try to end each episode with the same few questions. Um, so I'll start with the first one. Who is your dream client or maybe a dream project? Right. A dream project. Um, so I have three kids and they're obsessed with Disney World because we live like an hour and a half. Oh, yeah. So we, we were there a lot, right? I think that there is a project out there somewhere at a place like that where you can take all these skills of, you know, all the skills motion designers have, storytelling and design and animation and creating moods and things like that, but apply it to a a more interactive experience, you know, like projection mapping this over on this thing. And at the same time, you're on like a, you know, you're on a boat (laughs) and you're like going through like a flume or something like that. Um, I would love to, you know, this is something I really want to, I'm lucky because School Motion, like it, it affords me plenty of time to experiment with stuff and try things I want to do, and I really want to try. I want to see how motion design, you know, in the typical way we think of it as a static medium, how it can be translated 
into other into other formats. And there's people doing this already. I've never had the opportunity to do it. Yeah. All right, next question. Your favorite animated film? My favorite animated film is probably The Incredibles. Uh, I don't know. I let see as a Tough to beat Brad Bird, man. Yeah, as a as a movie, I think I Wally's my favorite Pixar film. But The Incredibles, the animation is just so spot on. And I'll say this too. Here, here's another like I, the animation in this movie is even better. I think it's unbelievable. I don't like the movie as much, but Hotel Transylvania. Oh, I haven't is seen un- that yet. Yeah, unreal character animation. You know, Adam, this is. Um, I don't know. It's Adam Sandler movie, and it's kind of almost like a joke. Like, <laughs> you know, like if it's an Adam Sandler movie, it's probably not. You know, and it came out <laughs> yeah. after, um, you know, Billy Madison is probably yeah, probably not. No. May, maybe Waterboy. Yeah, um, yeah, but uh, but the animation. Um, I'm trying to remember the the director's name was Gendry Sarkovsky, I think. I'm probably butchering his name, but he's a traditional character animator, and apparently they built these pu- these 3D puppet rigs where you'd animate the way you traditionally do, but then they could actually go in and handcraft poses at a super crazy detailed level. There was a, a talk about it at the first blend, and and when you watch that as an animator, you notice so much exaggeration and nuance and these crazy over-the-top poses that are on screen for two frames. And it's like, God, that must have taken so much work. So, um, And Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs is another one that kind of has that same feel. But I would say The Incredibles would be my favorite. I'm pumped for Incredibles too, actually. I'm not usually pumped about sequels, but I feel like it's going to be good. You know it's going to be good. You know it will. Yeah. All right, what do the people you love think that you do all day? (laughs) That's a really good question. Well, I say in the old days... um, like I would just tell people that I made commercials. That was the easiest way to to explain it. Um, I think most people, when I when I said that, they assumed I was like holding a camera or something. And now it's interesting because it's it's actually easier to explain what I do now. Um, but when people ask me, I say, "Oh, I I'm a teacher. I teach people how to do motion design." And and they ask, "What's motion design?" I say, "Oh, it's like graphic design and animation." And so they think that I'm teaching people how to make Disney movies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. so I think that's probably what people like outside of the industry assume I do. <laughs> All right. Last question: What animal did you choose for your animalator, and why? I chose the octopus uh, for two reasons. One, uh, it is my five-year-old's absolute favorite animal, which is really an interesting choice for a five-year-old. And we have stuffed octopi or octopuses. Yeah, I, don't, I, I don't always know. forget what is correct. <laughs> uh, but they're all over our house. So I had a lot of reference. Nice. Um, but also, um, you brought it up <laughs> earlier that you know I, I, I do tend to keep myself busy. There's a, we always have a lot of, of irons in the fire over here at School Motion, and there's a lot going on right now. Um, and luckily, I found a way to, to make that situation work for me and not work against me, and I really love it, and I really enjoy what I'm doing every single day, even when I'm stressed out. Um, but I do feel like an octopus, <laughs> you know, and I wish I had eight arms. Um, so, yeah, you'll be seeing an animated octopus for me. Well, Joey, I had a blast. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Awesome. Thanks so much, Zach. This was awesome. Animalators is created by the team at IV, recorded in the Weld Nashville studio, and produced by Chad Michael Snavely. To learn more, visit weld.co and chadmichael.com. 
To keep up with the work we're doing at IV, visit iv.studio or follow us on Twitter at Identity Visuals. You can also follow Animalators on Twitter at Animalators to keep up with all of the new episodes. And be sure to check out animalators.com to see every animation from all of our guests. You can find out more about Joey and School of Motion at schoolofmotion.com. And please go check out his book on Amazon. You can just search for The Freelance Manifesto. Our theme music is composed by Cody Fry. You can check out more of his music at codyfry.com. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and that helps more people find this show. As we continue to grow the show, we are now looking for potential partners who might be interested in sponsoring the show. If you have any interest in advertising on Animalators, please reach out and send an email to Alyssa at identityvisuals.com. That's A-L-Y-S-S-A at identityvisuals.com. Well, that's it for today's episode. Be sure and join us next time for another episode of Animalators. Curious conversations from the world of animation. <laughs> <laughs>